Welcome to episode number five of the Anthony John Amix podcast. Today we'll be going down the rabbit hole a bit. I'm going to be talking about my very first experience with magic mushrooms. I'll be sharing some wisdom that I learned that I believe will upgrade your life and your business dramatically, and possibly what Jesus meant when he said, do this in remembrance of me. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Anthony John Amex Podcast, helping entrepreneurs break through to new levels of peace, power, and profit. Prepare to open your mind to the proven tactics and strategies the world's leading intellects have used to avoid a stagnant career and achieve a life of freedom, purpose, and success. It's time to increase your levels of power with your host, Anthony John Amex. All right, my friend, welcome back. Man, Today's Sunday sermon is going to be a bit controversial. Now, before we dive deep, because if you listen to episode number two, you know these Sunday sermons are all about bringing you some meat. But before I do that, I mean, hopefully by now, you know I like to give you some pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, big insights on the podcast, epic guests who deliver massive value, and also some big love on the social media channels, right? So I want to try something else by giving you even more with my new book called Mindset is Not Enough. Now, this book will help you understand why most entrepreneurs struggle to scale their business, lead their teams, and find fulfillment. Plus, it will teach you the four steps to unlocking more peace, power, and profits in your life and your business. And you can grab that for free. Yes, absolutely free over at AJAMYX, it's A-M-Y-X.com slash book. So make sure you go to www.AJAMYX.com slash book to grab it today. All right, now let's go down the rabbit hole. In Luke 22, starting in verse 19, it says, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, I know I may be taking this out of context a bit. So if you're a biblical scholar, let me go ahead and just put that out there for a second. Okay, so don't waste your time trying to crucify me because I'm going to be honest, I don't care. I'm not here to prove or defend scripture from a historical perspective. That is not my purpose or my intention with this podcast. I'm here to help you open up your mind and your soul to some truth that allows you to experience a new level of freedom and purpose and success. So my question is this, what if the bread was not bread and the blood was not wine? What if the bread was actually the skin of a psychedelic mushroom, and the blood was the red juice from the psychedelic mushrooms. And what if Jesus was facilitating a healing psychedelic experience for his disciples? That's some food for thought, right? Now, I originally heard this theory on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast when Joe had Michael Pollan on his show. And they talked about Michael's newest book at the time called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Great podcast, by the way. And I'll make sure I put a link to that show um, in the notes here because it was a great podcast. But as I've started researching and studying and experiencing this world of psychedelics, it's actually helped me understand a lot of what Jesus seemed to be teaching. And more importantly, I've personally found a ton of healing 
I'm talking about life-changing and business benefits from my experience with psilocybin mushrooms. Now, let me back up a little bit and let me give you some context because I'm not some drug-induced hippie who's sitting here trying to promote drugs or plant medicine to be the cure for everything. I mean, I know some people who take that stance and that's just not what I believe. I believe all things in moderation can be a very big help to our growth and our evolution here in humanity. Like, I can't think of a single natural thing when used in moderation and with intention that harms people. When we have sex, alcohol, mushrooms, whatever, if used in moderation, they seem to actually help people have an amazing human experience. Now, you take the same things to the extremes... And yeah, probably not going to be the best choice, probably going to end up um, harming some people, if not yourself. Now, you can take anything, like anything to the extremes, and it seems it always is going to harm humans and humanity. I mean, take religion, for instance, right? You take that bad boy to the extremes, and you had the Crusades back in the day, and in the current day and age, you got the terrorist attacks, right? So it seems to be that anything taken to extremes seems to be dangerous, I mean, you can even apply this to water. Like if you drink too much water in a day, you can die. This is science. It's proven. You can work out too much. You can eat too much greens. Like that shut down your kidney if you're not careful. So moderation seems to be the key. Now let's back up. I grew up in a conservative Christian culture, Church of Christ, uh, to be like totally honest with you. And if you don't know that sect of religion, they believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. And they also believe that music in the church is a sin. So they're like super straight-laced. Now, I'm not here to say it's a bad uh, religion or a bad way of thinking at all, actually. I've met a lot of people that it seems to empower, and it's fantastic. I've just come to a realization that for me, that doctrine, that philosophy, that outlook, that theology was milk for me in this game of connecting uh, to my essence and living life from this very powerful and very free state. So growing up, I never did drugs. Like I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do cigarettes. Um, I just didn't want to damage my lungs. I played soccer and I was like, man, these lungs needs to be able to breathe some air, right? Now, many of my friends, they did. And I was totally cool with that. I was just like, you guys do your thing. I'll hang out with you. I'm just not going to do that stuff. And they were cool with that. So if you would have asked me like two years ago, if I would have ever taken a magic mushroom or any other plant-based medicine or some psychedelic drug or whatever, whatever label you want to use, I would have been like, fuck, no, no way, not in this lifetime, I wouldn't have done it. Now, let's fast forward to November 14th of 2018. This was the day my daughter Zyra was born. You know, and I wish I could sit here and tell you some story about how incredible and how beautiful it was, but the truth is, is it wasn't because it was one of the most darkest, most traumatic events of my life up to this point. You see, my wife and I, we had originally planned and we had prepared for a home birth, and we hired this amazing, incredible midwife, and she brought in her team for the day of birthing, and our home was peaceful, we had the birthing ball all set up, the essential oils were going, the fire was burning in the fireplace, we had spent like the past 90 days or so going through this program called Hypno Babies. We had read the literature together. We had done the meditations. We had read the books. I mean, we had put in the work. I mean, my wife was prepared. I was prepared. And I was 100% committed to be present and supportive of Sarah for the entire birthing experience. So when my wife, Sarah, went into labor at like 1 a.m. on November 13th, I was like, showtime, baby. We got this. I kept calm. I laid in bed with her and I was like telling her, I was like, hey, let's start a breathing patterns. And we just started breathing and we set the pace. 
And then I texted Jamie, our midwife, at 6 a.m. that morning to let her know that Sarah was in early labor because we're sitting there counting the time between contractions. And so, like, we kind of knew, like, what stage we're at. And Jamie was like, cool, no worries. I'll be there mid-morning for the birth. So then mid-morning rolls around, right? And Jamie is there, and the contractions are getting stronger and all of that. And she's telling us what to do, things like sit and bounce on the birthing ball, different breathing patterns and all the stuff, right? And I'm sitting there, like, anticipating Sarah's needs, like getting her water and snacks to make sure that she's staying hydrated and has energy. And then around 6 p.m. or so, when Zyra is within inches of being birds in our living room, Sarah's contractions just, like, stop. So we were like walking up and down our stairs, doing yoga, resting, doing like all of the natural things that we could possibly do to try to get the contractions to come back. And then Jamie tells us that we have to make a decision. Now, little did I know that this decision was going to be a life-altering decision for me. Little did I know that this decision was about to bring up some of my deepest, darkest wounds to the surface. Jamie tells us she feels that we need to go to the hospital to go get some Pitocin. So Sarah's contractions can start again, and Zyra will then be born in a matter of minutes. So we're like, cool, no problem. So we grab our bags. We grab our birthing plan. Remember, we had, like, the plan B. We're we're prepared here. We jump in the car, and then we drive to the hospital. Now, thankfully, it wasn't that far away. It was, like, 20 minutes um, away. Just hopped in the Volvo, and boom, got there. And so when we got to the hospital, they gave us a room. And then we tell them why we're there, and we give them our birthing plan that I'd printed off. And I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page, right? I wanted to keep the lights dim. I wanted to have delayed cord clamping. I wanted to ensure Sarah gets as much initial skin-to-skin contact with the baby as soon as was delivered. And so the hospital staff, they read our plan, right? And they're like, okay. So I thought this meant that we're all on the same page. Well, then they tell us before they can give Sarah some Pitocin that their process, their procedure, right, is they have to monitor the baby's heart rate for 20 consecutive minutes, right? It can't be broken. 20 consecutive minutes before they can make a decision to administer the Pitocin. So we're like, okay, well, let's do it. Now, keep in mind, my reference point for monitoring the baby's heart rate was based upon our midwife. I mean, Jamie had been at the house with us like all day, not even counting the months, the multiple, 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 multiple months leading up where she did all of our like pre-birthing examinations. And Jamie has this little Doppler machine thingy that she had placed on Sarah's belly. And then she'd be able to find the heart rate like bam, every time less than 30 seconds. And she could sit there and listen to the heart rate for as long as we wanted. No pain, no problems, just fast, easy peasy, right? But we weren't in our homes anymore. And even though Jamie was with us, she's sitting over there in the corner of the hospital room with us, we were in the hospital worlds now. So the first thing they do is put a catheter in for Sarah, which turned out to be a really good thing because they drained out like a full bag of urine. And it seemed like Sarah hadn't been able to urinate all day, even though she thought she was. And so once the urine was drained, it seemed like the contractions come back, but that happened um, later. So let's get back to the story here. So after the catheter thing, the next thing he did was place this big ass chunk of plastic on Sarah's belly to find the baby's heartbeat, which took them like, I don't know, five, 10 minutes to find or something like that. And then once they found the heartbeat, they then had to wrap this pink colored elastic tape-like stuff around Sarah's belly and around her back to then hold this huge chunk of plastic to Sarah's belly to then monitor the heartbeat. Well, the heart monitor thing kept moving, and then Sarah was complaining about how uncomfortable the tape was and that it was hurting her, so Sarah asked if they had another option. Now, the hospital agreed, and they tried using some wireless heart monitor thing that they had, 
Well, the thing with that was, is the staff couldn't figure out how to get it to work for a bit. They're like, I don't know how the machine works. We don't use it very often. And then when they did figure out how to make it work, the Wi-Fi signal wasn't strong enough to get it working well. And so by this point, we've been at the hospital for like three hours. Now, keep in mind, when we arrived, Zyra was within inches of being born. I'm, I'm serious about this. Inches. I could see the hair, right? And so they finally get a read on Zyra's heart rate. Here we are, three hours in. And I can see and I can feel the staff starting to go into a bit of, like this bit of panic. And they tell us that Zyra's heart rate is starting to get too high and that we need to get this baby out now. So then they put this oxygen mask on my wife and like this is where I lost it. I could see my wife struggling and I knew all we needed was some fucking Pitocin. And they still didn't have the heart rate dialed in, and nothing seemed to be happening, and I knew what was going to happen next if we didn't do something. I knew if Zyra's heart rate increased above a certain rate, they would then be forced to do a C-section, which would then rob Zyra and Sarah of the crucial bonding time between the mother and the daughter, and it would also mess with Sarah's milk supply. And this, my friend, is where I lost my marbles. See, at home, I felt seen. I felt heard by our entire team. I felt very, very supported. But at the hospital, I felt the complete opposite. I felt unseen. I felt unheard, regardless of my attempts to communicate with the staff and to lead all of us to the destination of birthing our daughter safely. I felt what I had articulated with a birthing plan immediately upon arrival had been ignored. And when they started to do things due to their procedures that went against what I thought we had all agreed upon, I went into full-on fight, flight, freeze, or appease mode. Like full-on lizard brain engaged. Now, love it or hate about me, between those four options, I tend to go into full-on fight, even if it means my death. So the moment that they put on that oxygen mask on Sarah and started telling me that Zyra's heart rate was increasing, I lost it. I walked over to Sarah, I grabbed her oxygen mask, I threw it across the room, I turned to the nurse and said, are you fucking stupid? Why is it taking you so fucking long to get the heart rate of this child? We've been here for nearly three fucking hours and you're sitting here dicking around causing this to happen. Are you a fucking idiot? And their response was, sir, is there something wrong? And I sat here and continued to berate them with my anger like a little child throwing a temper tantrum. And in my mind at that time, I only saw two options. Number one was to punch someone in the face and force them to listen to me and then be escorted to jail. Option number two was to sit down and give up because I didn't want to hurt anyone. And in that highly emotional moment, I chose option number two and I became apathetic. I didn't care anymore. I didn't care what happened. I didn't care if my wife died. I didn't care if my daughter died. I did not care about anything. I was done. I walked over and sat down in a corner, feeling like completely defeated, feeling like nothing I did, nothing I said mattered, and this left a mark on me. And for me, it was traumatic to my core. And eventually, in all of this madness, Sarah's contractions kicked back in, remember, because they drained the urine. And the doctor was then able to deliver Zyra completely naturally in a matter of like five to 10 minutes. Yet all I remember during Zyra's birth was feeling super numb. Like one memory that comes to my mind is they asked me if I wanted to look at the mirror to watch the baby like be birthed. And I stood there and I was like, whatever. And then when Zyra came out, I didn't feel happy and jubilant. I just felt like, whatever. And in that moment, I kind of remember like the staff asked me like, do you want to cut her cord? 
And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, well, didn't we say we wanted to do delayed cord clamping so all of the antibodies and all of the good nutrients can be pumped into the baby? But then I remember thinking to myself, like, well, what's the point? They're not going to listen to me anyway. And in the silence, they asked me again, sir, do you want to cut the cord as they're handing me a pair of scissors? So I took the scissors, I cut the cord, feeling extremely numb, feeling extremely apathetic to my core. Now, fast forward for three months after Zyra's birth, and here I was in one of the darkest pits I'd ever been in. I'd sit there and I'd hold Zyra and I'd look into her eyes and I'd think to myself, she doesn't fucking care if I'm here. I mean, as long as someone feeds her and cares for her, she doesn't care who it is. What's the point of this? Like, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to be here and be happy like they are on TV. Like, why am I so fucking messed up? And then I'd have these thoughts of like, well, what's the point of even working? Like, why the fuck should I be a coach? Why should I help anybody? Like, what's the point of working and giving my gift to the world anyway? I'd have thoughts about my marriage. What's the point of being married? I mean, all I do is drag everyone down around me. And these thoughts, man, they went on for like 90 days. And thoughts of me blowing my head off in the garage were becoming normal for me. I could see it. I could feel it. And I attempted like every shift move that I knew to alter my state. I mean, meditation, journaling, freakout sessions, walking in nature, going to the gym, lifting weights, like anything I could try to alter my state. Yet nothing I tried seemed to help me shift out of the hole that I seemed to be in. You know, it was kind of crazy because I was like, I was clearly aware that I was sitting at this bottom of a well. Like I was aware of how dark it was at the bottom of that well. And I could look up a long way up that dark, narrow well, and I could see the light. Yet I just wanted to sit at the bottom of that well in pure apathy. I just wanted to sit there. I just wanted to cry. Yet in my mind, I judged the shit out of myself. I blamed myself for not being able to force myself to get out of the pit. I blamed myself for releasing a form of ginger rage onto the hospital staff. And in all of the self-blame and shame, it just made me sitting in my apathetic pit even worse. Now, one thing I know with 100% certainty is I have a lot to give to humanity. Like, I know this in my cores, of course. I feel it deep within my soul, and I have for a very long time. So suicide has never really been an option for me. I just can't simply ever let myself take that route because I have this thing within me that tells me too many lives are on the line if I end mine. And this feeling always pulls me through the dark pits and it always keeps me going in my darkest hours. Now, I'm pretty sure every person on the planet has thoughts of killing themselves in some form or fashion at least once or twice in their lives. The thing about me is I'm just willing to call a spade a spade and I'm not willing to hide from the dark, nasty parts of myself. I'm willing to look at it objectively because I know I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I am the soul in control. So the first thing I did was turn to my good friend Google and ask, how do I know if I'm depressed? And it brought me back some search results with a quiz to take. So I took the quiz, and then the results said I was severely depressed to go seek help immediately. But I still wasn't convinced. I was like, me depressed? Nah, not me. So I searched Google some more, and I stumbled across an article talking about postpartum depression in men. Now, I didn't even know it was possible for a man to have postpartum depression. And I even judged myself for even the possibility, because I was like, I didn't even birth a child. But according to the article, one in 10 men suffer from postpartum depression. But I still wasn't convinced. So I called my mom. I knew she'd been battling depression for her entire life. And I asked her, I was like, hey, mom, how do I know if I'm depressed? And by the end of our conversation, I decided I need to get some help. So I picked up my iPhone and I sent our midwife, Jamie, a text. I was like, yo, Jamie, 
Uh, I think I'm depressed. Maybe it's postpartum shit. I don't know. Uh, do you know anybody that could help me? And Jamie then gave me a list of like three therapists that she thought could help. So I then researched them, and I felt like two of them couldn't handle me and my monster truck-like nature, and I felt like one may have a chance, and her name was Being a Bird. Pretty awesome name, right? So I reached out to her, and I booked a session. And by the end of the first session, come to find out, I became a statistic. I was one of the one in 10 men who suffer from postpartum depression. So why am I sharing this so vulnerably with you? Well, first, to set up the background that led me to my magic mushroom experience, Second, to let you know that if you feel the ups and downs of life, you're not broken, you're not messed up, you're human. And the third reason is perception is power. Because with perception, you have agency, and with agency, you have the ability to choose new thoughts and actions, and the new thoughts and the new actions can help you create new realities. So when I first met with my therapist, I told her exactly where I was. Like, I did, you know, didn't pull any punches. I'm just like, here's where I fucking am. I told her about my feelings of the well, what it looked like, and Bina recommended that I do eight weeks of EMDR therapy. Now, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. It's an interactive psychotherapy technique used to relieve psychological stress, and it's also proven to be an effective treatment for trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, it sounds all fancy, but it's actually pretty simple. I mean, each week I drive over to Bina's office, which is about an hour, hour and a half drive, depending on the day and traffic, but I was committed, so I made it happen, and each week I would go into her office, I would sit down, and she had this little rectangular-shaped box that had like four plug-ins on it. Two of the plugs were for headphones, and the other two plugs were those little things that you held um, in your hand, and they vibrated. So essentially, the little machine would send beeps into the headphones and little vibrational pulses into the things that you held in your hands. And the beeps and the vibrations would then pulsate and bounce from left to right. And at the beginning of each session, we had to make sure when the left ear beeped that the left hand vibrated, and when the right ear beeped, the right hand vibrated. Then when this was done, the beeps would start, and she'd ask me to go back to the traumatic event, and in this case, it was the birth of my daughter, and notice any feelings or any thoughts that come up while I listened to the beeps and felt the vibrations. Now... I don't know the science behind all of this, and I'm not going to attempt to explain it. All I know is somehow the beeps and the vibrations start to allow you to get to the root and shift your perceptions and heal from the trauma. So when I started this whole thing, right, I was at the bottom of this well. Then the next week after the first session of our EMDR, I felt like I was kind of like in the middle of the well. Then the next week, I felt like my head was sticking out of the well. Like I could see, but my shoulders and my entire body were still in the well. Then the next week I went in after it, I felt like I was sitting on the edge of the well. My legs were just like dangling, but the rest of my body was just chilling there on the little coping uh, of the well. And then finally the following week, I finally felt like I was standing outside of the well. I felt like I was completely out of that thing and I was pretty much close back to being myself again. But the thing about it is I never wanted to go back in that well. And I remember telling Bina during that last session that I felt like I was standing outside of the well, but I wanted to pour concrete down that motherfucker so I never, ever fell back into that thing. And I remember her just looking at me and kind of tilting her head ever so slightly. And to this day, I've always wondered, like, what did she think of me and my crazy analogies about life and my feelings? And I remember telling her that day, Uh, that I'll probably fall into other wells along my journey, but I never wanted to go back into that well. And I asked her, I was like, hey, Bina, how do we make that happen? And if I remember correctly, she said something like, I'm not sure. How do you feel we can make that happen? And I remember my answer, like it came to me me immediately. I was like, bam, psilocybin mushrooms. 
Now, I had come to this conclusion during my daily dialogue sessions, which is my daily journaling process that I do and that I teach my clients to do as well. And this, my friend, brings me to the entire point of the podcast. But I felt it was very, very important for you to have perspective on what led me to my first experience with magic mushrooms. I mean, the whole point of using magic mushrooms was to completely heal this chapter of my life. Now, before I went down this path, like before I was like, okay, yep, magic mushrooms, that's where we're going, I did some research and I found an article from the NBC News, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and it said, researchers from the John Hopkins University have FDA approval to study the effects of psilocybin by giving it to volunteers in a clinical setting. Now, to be clear, psilocybin mushrooms are currently illegal in the U.S., and they are considered a Schedule One controlled substance, which is crazy to me. But that is what it is at the time of this recording. And so with that being said, um, it's highly illegal. So I am not encouraging you to go out and do magic mushrooms. I'm just sharing my experience. Now, here's the research. During the university's research, volunteers who were extensively screened, right, they would take a pill of synthesized psilocybin. They would then put an eye mask on so they couldn't see. And they would then listen to peaceful music to help them internalize the psychedelic experience. And Dr. Matthew Johnson, who's part of the John Hopkins Psychedelic Research Unit in Baltimore, he said after 15 years of studies, they found, in general terms, psilocybin to be beneficial for people who are stuck in a way of thinking or behaving. Whether it's using a particular drug like cigarettes or alcohol, or whether it's like being stuck on a way of thinking about oneself, like I'm a failure, or I'm never going to make it, or no one likes me, like in depression, the psilocybin sessions seem to shake people out of their mental and behavioral cycles. Now, the effects are not just for like five or so hours that the volunteers are on the drug. They've actually found that some of the results can be lasting. Like they've seen some of the people with just a single substantial dose in a safe setting. They've seen substantial reductions in depression and anxiety six months later. And on the John Hopkins Psychedelic Research Unit's website, it has a list of notable achievements. And one of those is a 2006 research report stated that psilocybin led to profound experiences that 67% of participants rated as among the top five most meaningful experiences of their lifetime. And the single psilocybin session led to positive changes in moods, attitudes, and behavior for 14 months possibly longer, with 64% indicating that the experience increased their well-being or life satisfaction. Now, once I read these results, I was like, cool, psilocybin, it is for me. I'm being led down this path for a reason. Then I thought to myself, like, where do I even get that stuff? Remember, I grew up in a super conservative Christian culture. Like, I'd never bought drugs. I'd never, like, did them, so I didn't know where to find them. Thankfully, in my daily dialogue sessions, I was told who to ask and I was even told how much to take and where. I was told to take five grams, which come to find out is what many psychedelic experts like Terrence McKenna call a heroic dose, and I was told to go rent an Airbnb where there are no hills and no distractions. So I told my wife, and she found this amazing Airbnb in Weatherford, Texas, and it was this beautiful little place on like 600 plus acres of dairy farm, and it had this great little hill right next to the home that I could hike up and overlook all of the land. It was like perfect. So we booked it for a weekend in April. We left Dallas on a Friday afternoon and got to Weatherford around 4 p.m. And when we got there, we like scoped out the place and I hiked up the hill next to the house, like check it out, you know? And once we got there, I was like, man, this is gonna be perfect. Now, I knew I didn't want to start my journey until close to sunset. So I walked back down the hill to hang out with my wife and daughter until later in the evening. 
Then around 7 p.m. or so, I decided it was go time. So I gathered up everything I needed for my journey. A sleeping bag, a water bottle full of water, a Bluetooth speaker, a journal, and a box of pictures from me from my childhood. For my wedding gift, for whatever reason, my dad gave me this box of pictures of myself from my childhood. Now, I thought it was super random and weird. That's a whole nother story for a different podcast. But they came in very handy for this inner child healing experience. And after I gathered up my things, I then made my ascent up to the top of the hill. And when I got to the top of the hill, I laid out my sleeping bag to lay on and I said a quick prayer and set my intentions. I said something like, Father God, please guide me and protect me on this journey. Open my eyes to see as you see. Open my ears to hear as you hear. Open my heart to feel as you feel. Please guide me to healing what needs to be healed and let go of what needs to be let go of. Please guide me to being the best husband, the best father, and the best person I can be. And then I got out my mushroom capsules, all five grams of them. I think there was like 25 capsules. And I held them on my hand and I asked them to do the same. And then I took all of them. Then I started this breathing meditation. I set it to play through my Bluetooth speaker. And within about 25 or 30 minutes into that meditation, I had this feeling come through me that said, turn off the speaker, lay down, close your eyes. So I did. And within the next five or 10 minutes, I felt like my spirit started to drift upwards. It was like I was drifting throughout time, a swirl of reds and yellows and blues. They torqued and they turned, drifting, flying through time. I passed through ancient Chinese culture. I saw the dragons and the warriors, and then a voice spoke to me. It said, do you want your ego to die? And I was like, sure, if that's what you wish, I surrender to you. And then the voice said, okay, breathe. So breathe I did, deep inhale in, deep exhale out, and further and further I drifted. Now, before this moment, I had been experiencing sciatic pain for the very first time in my life because I hurt my back doing a 265-pound deadlift that week. And it served me in that moment because it was the only thing serving as an anchor as my spirit continued to drift up and up and up. It was like on one hand, I was completely out of my body, drifting into a place I can only describe as complete and utter bliss, to a place where time doesn't exist and all things exist at the same time. Yet I could feel this tightness of my left hip serving as an anchor, keeping my body in the here and now but I chose to focus my attention on that place of utter bliss. I chose to surrender to it, and before I knew it, a magenta void surrounded me. It was kind of like this blob of semi-solid liquid, kind of like that slime, you know, made with liquid starch, you know what I'm talking about? But in that place, I felt like home. It felt familiar. I felt like I was surrounded by old friends. It was like I had known these friends for eons, yet nothing but the semi-solid magenta-colored blob existed. It's kind of strange. It was like I was there, but at the same time, I wasn't there, and in this place, I watched the semi-solid magenta like liquid form expressing itself into forms. It expressed itself as my good friend and best-selling author, Jonathan Heston. It like stayed the semi-solid blob, but part of it expressed as him. So I could see that regardless of it expressing as Jonathan, the blob was still the blob. Then in the blink of an eye, the expression that was Jonathan returned back to the blob. Then the part of the blob expressed itself as my good friend and mentor, Christopher John Stubbs. And as it did with Jonathan in the blink of an eye, the expression returned back to the blob. And then it did the same thing with my father. And as soon as I saw this, I realized a simple truth. At our cores, we're all the same. We're all God, spirit, universe, Atman, Brahman, consciousness, like whatever name you want to call it, I'll call it God. Me, Jonathan, Christopher, my dad, you, us, everyone, at the root, we are the exact same thing. We are God. Yet we are exactly what we are as well, and this is the paradox. Jonathan Heston is Jonathan Heston, yet he is also God. 
Christopher John Stubbs is Christopher John Stubbs, yet he is also God. My dad is my dad, yet he is also God. I am Anthony John Amix, yet I am also God. And the same is true for you. We're all on this planet for God to have a unique experience as us, as you. And I also remember seeing Jesus express in that blob as well, just as it expresses Jonathan and Christopher. And in that moment, the voice said, I sent Jesus to help them remember who they are as well. And I remember like laughing my ass off to the point where tears were just like strolling down and streaming down my face because I was like, oh shit, they forgot. Like they think they have to worship him, but he came here to help them remember who they are and they're missing the entire point of what he's trying to tell them. He came to help us see how to truly love and embody our purpose. And for some reason, like I just laughed and I laughed and I laughed at this. And in that moment, I realized like, holy shit, we can be like anything we want to be. And it was about this time during my journey, I was like, so we can be anything we want to be? And the voice was like, yeah. And I was like, ha, I'm a chipmunk. And I remember like laying there with my eyes closed, acting like this chipmunk. And now about this time, unknown to me, my wife is like walking up the hill to check on me because she said I had been gone for hours up to that point now. I never heard her come there. I didn't even know it had been hours. It seemed like it was minutes. And she told me the next day that she was like worried. She's sitting in the house and she's like, man, like, what if I go up the hill? And what if he's having like this intense experience and he's sitting there crying? Like, what am I going to do? Because I'll be the first to tell you, my wife doesn't know what to do when people are crying. Like she, people cry and she's like, ah, she like freezes. She knows what to do. But when she walked up the hill, thankfully, she then sees me laying down on my sleeping bag with my eyes closed, laughing hysterically, talking to somebody out loud, and acting like a chipmunk, right? So she decided I was okay and quietly went back down inside. Now let's get back to the journey experience. After the Jesus part of the journey, I experienced like a sense of prosperity while I was in the magenta blob. Like I realized like all money exists now. It's always there for the taking. It's just a simple remembering that we're God. And if we can create from that place, like if we can tap into the eternal flow of money, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like all of the money already is, and there's plenty for everyone. But with our limited thoughts and our struggling and our striving, we keep ourselves from having as much of it as we want. But if we can remember that we're God, and we allow that source to then flow through us, through our unique gift into the world, fully embodying our purpose then the money is always there to support any experience that we wish to create. Then after that experience, I realized there are no wells. It was like something clicked in my mind. Like I could feel it in my core of cores and I even said it out loud. There's no wells. It was like this big aha moment. Then I asked a question. I was like, but won't there be other wells? And the voice answered immediately. No, there are no wells. There was only a well there because you placed it there. And in that moment, I, I got it. My limited thinking created the well. My limited thinking, my lack of remembering who I was in the hospital, the soul in control created the well of depression. So moving forward, if I will only remember who I am, there will never be any wells. And it was like in that moment, the concrete I wanted to pour into the well was no longer even needed because the well just simply vanished, like all of them, gone, forever, not coming back. And there hasn't been a day since that day where I've ever, ever felt like I've been in a well. Then I remember asking God, how do I be the best husband and the best father like in this space? And God told me the following words. You are here to help them remember who they truly are. 
If they can remember who they truly are, then they can create whatever it is they want to experience here on this planet as a human. Help them remember. And in that moment, I felt like I was given my purpose, and I opened my eyes, and I felt like I needed to go down to the house and tell Sarah. And by this time, the sun was starting to set, and it was starting to get dark outside. So I opened my eyes, and I looked at my arms, and they seemed to be glowing. And I saw these black spirals that were glowing in my arms. And I strongly felt like I needed to go tell Sarah that we must remember who we are. So I decided I need to put on my flip-flops and walk down the hill to the Airbnb. But then a problem arose. I could only find one flip-flop. Now, I could have sworn they were right beside one another when I started my journey. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, well, I guess it's okay. I mean, I guess I could just walk barefoot down to the house. And then I thought to myself, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. I mean, because there are some huge graspers like right around us and in this grass. I mean, there's like these giant sticker things full of thorns. And there's a part of me upon this realization that said, it's okay. I mean, you're God. It's just a body. It'll heal. And then this other part of me, thankfully, was a lot more realistic. And I was like, yeah, but we love our body and we really need to take care of it. And I was like, good point, good point. All right, let's find another flip-flop. And I swear it felt like looking for that flip-flop forever. And eventually I found it. It was right beside me the whole time. I just couldn't see it for some reason. So then I put on my flip-flops, gathered all my stuff, even the box of pictures that I haven't even looked at yet. And when I stood up, I felt like I was Moses from the biblical stories, like coming down the mountain with the tablets. I felt like this box of pictures that I had under my arm from my childhood were like these the tablets, right? And I was Moses bringing the good news to the people. And so when I got inside, I looked at Sarah and I said, babe, we must remember who we are because if we can remember who we are, which is God, then we can create from that place and everything will be okay and everyone will be able to embody their purpose and create the version of the ultimate human experience. And Sarah, so gracious and so kind, she just looked at me and smiled and said, okay, love. And then she went off to give Syrah a bath, and I laid down by the fire in my sleeping bag, and I continued to process things. Now, it's strange looking back on this experience because there's moments of like this full vivid color and asking questions and knowing answers. And then there's like other times of just like pure dark nothingness, I get like a void, I guess, that seemed to occur for hours. And during this void in the house and my sleeping bag, I remember like waking up and asking myself, like, don't I need to look at those pictures and cry to heal my inner child? And the voice said, if you want to know, you must take more. And I was like, more? And the voice said, if you want to know, you must take more. And I wrestled with this for what seemed like hours, you know. And each time I kept like questioning, the voice kept saying the same thing. So I accepted it and I took three more grams of psilocybin. And during that time, I started looking at the pictures in the box from my childhood. And while looking at them, I had this huge revelation. I could see the images of me as a young child, like three, four, five, six years old. I had like this light in my eyes. But when it got to me at like 10 years old and into my teenage years, it was like the light was gone. And it's like for the first time I could clearly see, I was like, poor AJ, man. He's just forgotten who he was. He just forgot. Like he didn't remember. He doesn't remember. I mean, his father forgot who he was, and as a result, his son forgot who he is. So I must remember, I must remember who I am, the soul in control, capable of creating anything that I want. And if I can do this, I can help my wife and my daughter always remember who they are in the process. And this is how I get to be the best father and the best husband is by helping my wife and my daughter remember who they are at all times during life. And it was like something within me like clicked and I was like, I remember. And that was another huge healing experience. 
So my friend, this was my experience with magic mushrooms, like all eight grams of it. Now, some may say like, that's insane taking that much from my first experience, and maybe they're right. Yet, this wasn't my first psychedelic experience, it's actually my second. A little more than a year before my my first magic mushroom experience, I actually went to another healing medicine journey with MDMA that completely changed my life. And maybe I'll do another episode about that journey. I mean, if you find some value in this, if you enjoy this, shoot me like a DM on Instagram, at uh, AJMX is my Instagram handle. Let me know what you think about it. And if you do, I, I'll be more than happy to share my experience from that one because I learned so many lessons um, for sure. So that's ultimately why I felt very comfortable with going down the psilocybin route with this plus the research, right? And doing it on my own. Now, to be clear, I don't recommend taking magic mushrooms without the help and the guidance of a trained professional. I mean, there's a lot of studies out there that show when you take magic mushrooms under the guidance of a trained professional, years of healing can actually be collapsed into days and into hours. And this has been my experience, but I am not like recommending that you go down that path. I'm just simply sharing, um, you know, based upon my experience. So what's the lesson here? Well, my invitation to you is this. Remember who you are, which is the soul in control. I mean, you're here to embody and express a specific purpose. And if you wanted to be pure consciousness, your soul would have stayed there as pure consciousness. But your soul didn't. Your soul chose to come here to earth to have a unique experience as you. So have that unique experience and enjoy creating experiences that your soul truly desires. And the really cool part, when you remember who you are, you actually help others remember who they are. And when people remember who they are and they create from that place, they can create anything they desire on this planet. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Maybe letting your light shine is nothing more than remembering who you are. And when you remember and embody your light fully, the world around you sees your actions, and as a result, they remember and bring their goodness into the world as well. And if you're going to use psilocybin, remember to be intentional. My personal experience has been it can be extremely beneficial, and it can help you collapse years of therapy into a single session if, and this is a big if, my friend, if you have the right guidance and the right preparation. You know, leading up to my journey, I journaled daily for a month. I ate clean food for a week. I did like a whole three-day juice fast leading up to my journey. And I believe all of this work and all of the intention really sets the stage for massive healing and insights. Now, again, I'm not here to tell you that you must or that you should take magic mushrooms. I'm just sharing what has helped me and what put an end to my postpartum depression and that brought like massive healing into my life. I am very, very, very thankful for plant medicine. And I believe if you feel called to it, maybe there's a reason. Now, my final question for you is this. Where in your life are you not remembering who you truly are? And what impact is it having on your bank account, your connection with your partner, and having more fun in this life? And what may be truly possible for you if you truly saw yourself as the powerful creator that you truly are? Like, how much freedom, purpose, and success would you be creating and experiencing right now if you took strategic action from that place of truly remembering who you are. Well, my friend, that's going to do it for this episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast. 
I hope you've enjoyed my stories from my first experience with magic mushrooms, and I also hope that the backstory to this whole thing served you as well. Now, unfortunately, I've got to wrap this podcast up, but I really want to talk more about this topic because it's something I know has potential to help you break through to new levels of freedom, purpose, and success. So here's what I'm going to do. Head on over to www.ajamyx.com slash book, and I'm going to give you my mindset is not enough for free. In the book, I talk more about remembering who you are and why most entrepreneurs struggle to scale their business, lead their teams, and find fulfillment. It comes down to a concept I call core power, and most people have no clue how to access it. So go download that book immediately at ajamix.com slash book. Thanks again, my friend, for tuning into this episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast. Until next time, my friend, I'm out. Peace. That's all for this episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast. But we have plenty more to help you achieve a life of freedom, purpose, and success. Head on over to ajamix.com for exclusive resources, information, and tools to break through to new levels of peace, power, and profit. We look forward to having you back for the next episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast. Bye for now.